0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're taking our Bibles this evening and turning to the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra. We find our way this evening to the third chapter of the book of Ezra. Someone recently pointed out to me that I've been saying that there are 12 chapters in the book of Ezra. So first, I ask your forgiveness for that. And second, I encourage you, anytime you catch me in an error... As I'm sharing God's Word, feel free to let me know. Um, Those who speak often make errors often. So I wish I could write two more chapters to the book of Ezra, but I don't think the Lord will give me that kind of authority. We're going to stick with the fact that there are ten chapters to the book of Ezra. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra are about building the house of God. As the children of God come back with Zerubbabel and reestablish the temple and its worship, the last chapters of the book of Ezra are about building a heart for God as the Lord uses men of God, Ezra in particular, to bring about revival in the nation of Israel. We're opening our Bibles this evening to the book of Ezra, the third chapter, and as we do so, we ought to be mindful that from the time of man's creation, people have gathered together to worship God. The Old Testament contains a robust record, really, of religious observation, on behalf of God's people as they gathered together before Jehovah God. And I'm mindful even that as we meet this evening, more and more Americans are vacating the house of the Lord. The remembrance of the resurrection on the Lord's day has been forgotten by many. And so, sadly, statisticians confirm what we already fear fewer and fewer people are identifying with the people of God in this country. And by the way, as we see social upheaval, we see political confusion, it shouldn't be a real surprise to those who watch societal indicators as we discover we're living in a nation that's increasingly pagan. Over the past several years, since 1972, only 5% of the people in America claim no religious affiliation. In 2018, that number had ballooned to 23% of the people in America. And let me just suggest from the outset tonight, even before reading our text, that the idol of recreation has pushed away for most people any obligation to service for the Lord on the Lord's Day. In fact, a generation ago, John Henry Jowett, who was considered the greatest preacher in the English language in the early 1900s, Jowett said, were a man from Mars to observe us from his space platform, the most obvious evidence he would have that there are Christians on this planet would be their gathering on the first day of the week at some appointed place and in time. Indeed, should he back away from Earth in his anti time machine and begin to scan our past history, he would find that Christians have always assembled, whether in private homes or under the dome of some lofty cathedral in an open field on the first day of the week. We're opening our Bibles this evening to an Old Testament passage with New Testament relevance as we open this evening to Ezekiel. And the third chapter, the title of this evening's message, comes from a phrase that we find in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 1 as we read, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem, then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And They set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening, they kept also the Feast of the Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering both of the new moons and all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple the Lord was not yet laid. We look this evening at the theme the people gathered. The people gathered. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Now, Father, I pray that from this passage, though obscure to most, we'd find modern relevance and application, that we would be confirmed in the faith and that we would stand strong in a time of great confusion, that we would be as they of old who would gather before the Lord with the expectation of your blessing. So bless this service and bless your considerate, this consideration of your word, and we'll thank you for it, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've opened to Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, a passage that provides a record of the first public service that was hosted as the children of Israel returned to Jerusalem from their Babylonian captivity. Now, This was not a New Testament gathering, obviously, This is prior to the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact this happened 570 years 570 years before the Lord would be crucified. This was not a typical Old Testament gathering either. The Temple Mount was in ruins the city of Jerusalem was broken down the gates and the walls had not yet been restored that would only happen later under the ministry of Nehemiah. In fact The city would not be restored for another 90 years. and So on Mount Moriah where Solomon had built his temple a place that's now in ruins, a place that looks ever so barren we find Zerubbabel and the people of God coming and building an altar and consecrating an offering unto the Lord. I want you to notice as we look in this passage that we're arriving in Ezekiel chapter 3 in a very special place. Those Who gather on Mount Moriah are standing in the very place where Abraham stood when he was willing to offer his son Isaac, and God stopped his arm and provided the ram in the thicket. Those who gather here in Ezra chapter 3 are standing in the very place where David stood after he had purchased the threshing floor of Aruna, saying he would not take that threshing floor as a gift. He wanted to pay for it as he consecrated this very place to the Lord. They're standing in the very place, spoken of in Second Chronicles, chapter five and six, where Solomon saw the Shekinah glory of God fall and fill the holy place. They're standing in that place where the singers sang, and the glory of God was so revealed so wonderfully as Solomon prayed that the people could no longer minister, but that place doesn't look like it had looked before. The Babylonians had come, they had ransacked the temple, torn the stones apart, burned that which they could burn, and left the place a ruin. The people are gathering in this special place at a very special time. Cyrus the Persian had done something remarkable. Cyrus the Persian, as he came into power, had given the opportunity for the children of Israel to leave Babylon and go back, go back across the sands, go back across the difficult wilderness, to their homeland. 49,897 Israelites took advantage of the invitation. They would journey some 900 miles, enjoying the freedom that Cyrus had given them to go back to their homeland and enjoying the financial aid that Cyrus had provided for them to rebuild the temple. They traveled back. They now have come to occupy their ancestral homelands. We read of that in chapter 2 and verse 70. So the priests, and the Levites, and some of the people, the singers and the porters and the Nethanemes, dwelt in their cities. And all Israel dwelt in their cities. But now as we come to chapter 3, when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And what an example. These Old Testament pilgrims set for us in New Testament times. They are doing what people have commonly done throughout the generations. Ever since the establishment of people on this globe, people have gathered together to worship and serve the Creator. That's what they're doing in this Old Testament time. And as they do so, they share with us, I believe, in New Testament times, a necessary example. I see here, after all, the priority of their gathering. They have only recently come back to their homes. They found their ancestral homes occupied by others and under the edict and authority of Cyrus of Persia. These who have occupied these places have been cast out. Some find their ancestral homes have been ruined. They've been spending time taking the weeds out of the fields, reestablishing the flocks, spending time making sure that everything domestic was in order so that they could survive. But as we come to chapter 3 and verse 1, the Spirit of God tells us something interesting. When the seventh month was come. You see, on the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, everything needed to stop. The seventh month of the Jewish calendar was filled with religious observation. It was on the seventh month of the Jewish calendar that the Day of Atonement, that sacred day, in which the high priest had once gone into the Holy of Holies, with the blood of the covenant to apply. It was in the seventh month that that day was observed. It was on the seventh month that the Feast of Tabernacles was observed, when the children of Israel would gather themselves together and live in tents to remember how God had brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness wanderings into the Promised Land. Now, there was still a lot to be done in every home. There were provisions for families that needed to be gathered There was a lot to be done in every business place as these almost 50,000 strong have come back into their ancestral homeland. But we discover in Ezra 3 and verse 1 that they set a priority that on that seventh month, that month set aside for worship in the land of Israel, these people were gathering. The Bible makes a consistent plea for God's people to make a priority out of service for the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 3, we read, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses burst out with new wine. Matthew 6 and verse 33 admonishes all of us. Seek ye, can you say it with me? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Worship is our highest purpose. When we gather together, whether it be a Sunday evening, a Sunday morning, a Wednesday night, any time God's people gather together, we have a little bit of heaven on earth. For heaven will be a place where God's people gather regularly. When we gather together as God's people collectively to praise the God who has redeemed us, to fellowship with brothers and sisters that we've come to love in Christ. When we gather together to give glory to God and receive the joy of His grace in abundance, We're about our highest purpose, for the highest purpose of man, is to worship God. These who gathered in this Old Testament time made it a priority. They made it a priority. I love what Matthew Henry had to say. Matthew Henry, such a godly Puritan, that Spurgeon would say, every person ought to read Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible on his knees. Matthew Henry said, though they had newly come to their cities and had their hands full of business there, to provide necessaries for themselves and their families, which might have excused them from attending on God's altar till the hurry was a little over, as many foolishly put off their coming to the communion till they've settled in the world. Yet such was their zeal for religion now that they newly come from under correction for their irreligion, that they left all their business in the country to attend God's altar, and which is strange, in this pious zeal they were All of a mind, they came as one man. And then said Matthew Henry, let worldly business be postponed to the business of religion, and it will prosper the better. These are setting examples in the Old Testament times upon, or for us, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Examples of making a priority that I'll serve God first. It's interesting in our generation. God has particularly used some businessmen who have done rather well to demonstrate his willingness to bless those who prioritize their service for God. I think of Truett Cathy. And who doesn't like a Chick-fil-A sandwich, right? And I love seeing those even billboards on the highways as you go by a Chick-fil-A exit, and it will say, not open on Sunday. They've done pretty well with that. I love the story of the Green family and Hobby Lobby their willingness to say, while people are out there looking for crafts and things for their home on the Lord's Day, it's still the Lord's Day and we won't open the doors. But I've got a better story. I have a friend, his name was Dave. He graduated as a PhD in education from the University of Pennsylvania. He went to New England and became a college president for many years. In fact, when he became the president of this small college, there were fewer than 400 students. And when he left that Particular task, there were over 3,000. He built buildings and saw blessings, and then came the time when he was nearing retirement, and the state canned him. They let him go. They severed him from his retirement. He wept, for he had, he had placed his trust in those that had worked with him all those years. And now he asked, what shall I do? He took that which he had saved, and he began a real estate company in partnership with his son, who was a real estate attorney. He said to me, Pastor, we're going to start a real estate company. I'm going to sell houses. I've never done that before, but I want to tell you something. I'm never going to be involved in in working on the Lord's Day. I said, well, Dave, let's pray about that. About four years into it, he had more listings in the state of New Hampshire than any other real estate company in that state. In fact, he had so many listings, he had said as he started the company, I don't care if it's a trailer home or a doghouse. I'm going to sell it. If somebody wants to list it, I'll sell it. So he began listing very humble places and then others began to learn that this man was serious about what he did and it grew and it grew. Within just a few years it seemed, a larger real estate company came along and said, we want to buy your business. And you know what? God provided his retirement and he never worked on a Sunday. God has a wonderful way of spoiling the Egyptians. In the Old Testament times as well as the New. For those who would prioritize the Lord's Day, and I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight, but aren't you blessed by it? For those who have prioritized the Lord's Day, we have plenty of examples in the Scriptures, and here we find one of them. Why we ought to gather, their example is not only one of setting a priority, but there is wonderful unity that's demonstrated as they gather. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, They gathered as one man. Now God required the men of Israel to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. In Exodus 23 and verse 14 In no uncertain terms, they are told that on the Passover and at the Feast of Tabernacles, at Pentecost, they were expected to be in their place in Jerusalem. God wanted, after all, those people who were in their tribal divisions to come home and have one national bond at least three times a year. For some of them, it would mean walking five to seven days. For the Lord's family, coming from Nazareth and The land of Galilee, it would be about a three-day walk, uphill all the way. And as they walked to Jerusalem, they walked and they sang a song of unity. One of the Ascension Psalms is one of my favorites, the 133rd. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That passage reminds us of what it's like. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down over the beard, even Aaron's beard. What's that suggesting? It's suggesting that when there's unity, it's like the ointment that flowed upon the high priest. An ointment that flows that's full of pungent perfume is going to be wafting through the air, and and everyone's going to enjoy it. And when there's unity among the people of God, there's a fragrance that cannot be stopped. I know when my wife is making cauliflower or Brussels sprouts, as soon as I walk in the house... I can tell from the flies on the screen, right? And I rejoice in that fragrance. Not everyone does, but I do. Fragrances can't be stopped. The 133rd Psalm is saying when there's unity, it's like a fragrance. It's a whole lot better for a church to have unity than a church to have a a big billboard out on on the highway. There's no more significant advertising for a church where the power of God is than the unity of that congregation. This psalm says, not only is it like the fragrance that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, it's like the dew of Hermon, as the dew descended from the mountains on Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Well, what's the dew of Hermon? Well, Mount Hermon's is the highest peak in Israel. It's snow-covered a good bit of the year. And as the snow melts, it produces the river, the Jordan River that flows through the valley and provides for fruitfulness in all of the valley. Where there is no unity, there is no fruitfulness. And when there is unity, there is a fragrance that other people know about, and there's fruitfulness that's there. In Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1, these people are gathering together as a unified congregation. And what a blessing to see how they unify. They unify around a common history. They're going to be celebrating the Passover, They're going to be remembering the redemptive work that God has provided for them. And listen, every Sunday when we gather together in this place, what a joy it is with confidence to celebrate our common unity. That common unity being that we're only sinners, but we're saved by grace. And as they gathered together, not only in the Passover to remember their history, they would gather together at Pentecost, and here they'd remember their hope. For Pentecost was a celebration of first fruits coming in with the knowledge that there was a greater harvest to come. And even so there's a greater harvest to come for there is a first fruit. Jesus Christ is the first fruit. And as we gather together on the Lord's day, we have a common hope. It's the hope of the rapture and the hope of the resurrection. As these gather together, I love the feast of tabernacles. I think any child in Israel would have loved that feast best because they got to live in tents for a number of days. It was a reminder of how they wandered through the wilderness and the tents. But as they gathered together on that celebration feast, they gathered to remember that they have a common home. Isn't it sad that so many churches are known for schism and division when God's people ought to be known for gathering together as a unified flock? This isn't something new, by the way. There are those who wrestle with the whole concept of why can there be so many denominations? I heard the story of a little boy who was playing in his backyard with his friend. He went in the house and he came back out and he said to his friend, I can't play with you anymore. His friend said, why not? And He said, my mommy says, we're from different abominations. There are a lot of people who eschew the whole concept of <laughs> denominations. But folks, this isn't something new. The Apostle Paul would write to the church at Philippi A church that he planted, and he would say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let everyone esteem other better than self. And in chapter 4, he'd write to those two very infamous women that the Sunday school child thought were actually named Odorous and Stinky, but Yodius, and Syntyche were asked by all means to do their best to be of the same mind in the Lord. God is glorified when God's people are unified. And so we see an example here in the Old Testament. But I want you to see something more. Notice the authority of their gathering. Twice we read this little statement, once in verse 2 and once in verse 4. As they gathered together at the end of verse 2, it says, to offer burnt offerings, therefore, as it is written in the law of Moses. And then in verse 4, they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles as... It is written. In other words, they were serving under the authority of God's Word. They were participating in worship, but they were ever so careful to participate in a way that would please God. I want to stop here for just a moment. Because it's an important example that this Old Testament text sets for us. It's no coincidence that twice the Spirit of God is going to say, as it is written in the law, as it is written. In other words, they were obligated to follow the authority of God's word as they gathered together. And of all the people on the planet who would be ever so careful when they gathered, surely these people who are coming back from Babylonian captivity, having served 70 years of hard labor because of the idolatry of their forefathers, These people would have been ever so careful to keep every nuance of the law as they gathered together to worship. And so should we. You say, well, we're not under the law. (laughs) We're not under the law, but if you're a careful reader of God's word, we certainly understand that the word of God must be our authority for our faith and for our practice. In other words, as God's people gather, there are some expectations that God has of us. We are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We're to sing. We're to lift up our hearts in prayer to the Lord as we gather together. No accident that we start our Sunday morning service and Sunday evening service in prayer. We're to be listening to and gaining knowledge of God's word as it's applied to our hearts. The word of God says, till I come give exhortation, or give, give attention rather, to doctrine, to exhortation. Give attention to the matter of sharing God's word and exhorting from it. We're to gather around the Lord's table. These are consequential considerations. When we come together as a church family to gather and worship, it's not just a matter of what I like. It's a matter of what does God desire of me. After all, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to worship the right God the wrong way. We ought to be aware of that. Take your Bibles for just a moment. Go back with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus, chapter 32. In Exodus, chapter 32, we discover the children of God worshiping the right God, Jehovah, the wrong way. And my, what danger they fell prey to. In Exodus, chapter 32, you'll remember the story how that Moses was on the mountain receiving the commandments of God. And in verse 1, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we what not what has become of him, he's disappeared. And verse 3, and all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And in verse 4, he received them out of their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation. And what did he say? Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah. The word Lord there is Jehovah. They're worshiping the right God. Listen. but They're worshiping the right God the wrong way. And if you remember the story, as Moses comes down from the mountain, he hears music accompanying their worship. And the question of those who accompany Moses, is it a war? (laughs) Moses says, no, it's not a war, but the cacophony of noise that comes out of the camp might well be a war. And you recall that God goes through the camp of Israel, and before it's over, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us 23,000 people would die because they worshiped the right God the wrong way. God wasn't interested in their imitating the world round about them. God wasn't interested in their worship that looked ever so familiar to the pagan cultures that were round about them in the wilderness. And because he was not interested in that kind of worship, 23,000 people would die. Take your Bibles and go with me for just a moment over to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. You remember the story from Sunday School Times in Leviticus chapter 10, how that the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. What's that? Well, even the ingredients in the incense had been prescribed by the orders of Moses. And Nadab and Abihu thought, you know, let's have just kind of a little bit of a different service. Maybe we'll put some rosemary in the incense. What harm would that do? I like rosemary, don't you? They changed the ingredients of the incense just a little bit. They offered strange fire to the Lord. And the Word of God tells us of the consequence There went out fire, verse 2, from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. God's not all that impressed with our innovation. God does not want us imitating the world when we worship, but He does not want us innovating new ways to worship that can attract a crowd. That's dangerous. The pages of the Old Testament are filled with testimony to that danger. And listen, when you come to Ezra chapter 3, and you can turn back there, when you come to Ezra chapter 3, of all the people on the planet who have come to understand the danger of doing worship wrongly, these people who have come back from Babylon, who were setting up that altar for the first time on that heap of ruin that had one time known the Shekinah glory, you can be sure they were ever so careful How about you, New Testament believer? Does it shock you, some of the things that go on under the umbrella of worship today? Is your spirit grieved to think that people with innovation and imitation of the world somehow think that they can be pleasing a holy God? When I come to the book of Ezra and see an example, I see an example here of people who had a priority but also understood the authority under which they were serving. It is senseless for us to offer worship that does not please God. It's better off staying home. What are you talking about, Pastor Phelps? Well, listen to what the Word of God says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1 and verse 13. God says to the children of Israel, before their captivity, bring no more vain oblations, incenses an abomination to me, the new moons and the Sabbaths, And the calling of assemblies, I cannot away. It's iniquity, even your solemn meetings. Why are you doing this? If you've forgotten who I am, if you've forgotten the sacred duty that God has given to you to obey God's word as you gather together before me, why are you doing it? He not only says that in the book of Isaiah, he says it again in the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 5, we read, I hate, God says, I despise your feast days. I will not smell... In your solemn assemblies, though you offer me bird offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Well, I thought all music, if it's offered to God, is okay. No, no. No, no. I will not hear the melody of your vials or your violins any longer. God says be careful. When it comes to Ezra chapter 3, I see a priority of God's people gathering. I see unity when God's people gather. I see an authority when God's people gather. And I find also there was difficulty as they gathered. After all, as they set the altar, verse 3 says, upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. The enemies surrounded them. As they stood exposed on the temple mount, as they lit that conflagration that would allow the burnt offering to ascend up into heaven, When they gathered, it was a time of difficulty. (laughs) I know for some, it's an aggravation to wear a mask. I know for others, it's a time when we say, I wonder if governmental intrusion is going to cause us as a church family to have to stand up and protest and practice our First Amendment rights. Thank the Lord for our First Amendment rights. The reality is the church often does not prosper during times of ease and often prospers most during times of difficulty. McGonville, in his commentary on the book of Ezra, makes this observation. It's far more difficult to hear the message of the fragility of life and the fact of dependence on God for each succeeding breath amid the settled affluence and long life expectancy that so many in the Western world enjoy. Yet, all of our securities are ultimately illusory. Big words, but it's true. Often we fail to really carefully consider God's word when everything is easy. These people in that day were surrounded by political opposition. In chapter 4, as we arrive there, we'll discover how the Assyrians had planted their own people in a place called Samaria, and how the Samaritans there had reared up their own way of worshiping their God. And so from Mount Moriah, as the flames ascend up, the surrounding communities that are now no longer populated by the Jewish people, but now are populated by half-breeds and Assyrians. These people who are obeying God understand the risks that they're putting themselves under. Folks, I hope that we will understand that during times of difficulty, God can often be most glorified, and that we will understand that it is the Lord's day, Revelation 1 and verse 10 that we observe, not tradition. I was talking to my nephew recently. He pastors in rural West Virginia. He said something that grabbed my attention. I said, Josh, how's it going? He's enjoying his first pastorate. He's in a county with 4,500 people, has a church with about 150 people now. It was much smaller than that when he went two years ago. But he's fervent about the Lord and the Lord is blessing. And I said, how's the ministry going? And this is what he said. He said, well, Uncle Chuck, One of the biggest challenges we face is the people in our church that have given themselves to anything but church. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we have so many people in our our church who have put their kids into so many traveling sports leagues that it's hard to have church sometimes. He said, I've got a kid in our church in fourth grade who's got a $700 baseball bat. He said, Sunday comes, they're in Cincinnati and Columbus rather than church, they'll travel three hours, two hours to go to a sports game on Sunday. But they're not in the house of the Lord. He said, you know what I've been telling them, Uncle Chuck? I said, what's that, Josh? He said, I've been telling them, save your money of all those sports games that you're going to and all that traveling you're doing. You put all that money in the bank, you'll have plenty of money to send your kid to college when the time comes. You think they're going to get a scholarship? Because that's what they're saying, Uncle Chuck. They've got to get a scholarship. He said, I'm telling you, if they just save that money, they have plenty of money to provide their own scholarship. And Good for you. He's not thinking like a young man. He's thinking like a pastor. We're living in a generation where anything comes up on Sunday and it becomes a priority. That is not what you see modeled anywhere in God's Word. I dare you to try to be an apologist, to say that the Lord's Day is anything but the Lord's Day. I dare you to try to put out a position before the Lord that other things that come up ought to be observed first. It's amazing to me. I can remember back in the time when pastors sat around the kitchen table and they said, you know what, when they start having these three-day weekends, it's going to destroy our churches. Huh. Huh. That was back in the day when people thought twice before they traveled on Sunday. That's a long time ago. The difficulties we face are not difficulties from outside opposition. And while we get fearful during this time of COVID oppression, the real difficulties we face come from within. As we become sullen in our church attendance and we think that it's no big deal to miss gathering together with God's people. It's a big deal. Throughout the pages of God's word you see example after example like the example we're considering this evening of those who were willing to gather even when it was difficult because they understood this was their duty to do. This was their duty to do. Verse four, they kept also the feast of the tabernacles as it is written and they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. Ezra four and verse four points out that the people worshiped because they knew themselves to be duty-bound to worship. And this worship-blessed duty of the people of God, this worship-blessed duty of the people of God brought blessings their way. And as we look in God's Word, example after example is provided, but I find myself often challenged by what I read in the book of Luke. Frequently in the Gospel of Luke, there's the little word custom. It comes from the Greek word ethos. Here's an example of it. In Luke 4 and verse 16, the Bible speaks about the ministry of Jesus, and it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, his ethos was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood for to read. Where would Jesus be on the Sabbath? (laughs) Well, the Bible tells us right there it was his custom. It was his ethos. It was his habit, if you will, to be in the synagogue. I wonder how he liked the worship service in the synagogue. Do you think he was happy with the Pharisees who were running the synagogue? How about when he went up on the feast days to the temple, do you think he was happy with the theology of the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection? And yet the Bible tells us, by the power of the Spirit of God, that Jesus kept these religious duties. He did it in order to be about the ministry that the Father had given to him. And he sets for us an example. But duty can be a very difficult taskmaster. So I'm glad to say in this passage to which we've turned this evening in Ezra chapter 3, we find the people of God as they gather together doing their duty, making a representation that applies to us as New Testament believers For the word of God does remind us in Hebrews 10 and verse 25 not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And I believe something happens when people are challenged first to duty and habits and customs build in our lives. I think this happens. By the end of this passage, we find the voluntary nature of their gathering. For after they had offered continual burnt offerings, verse 5, both of the new moons and all the set feasts of the Lord after this had been consecrated, everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord is here mentioned. So inspired by this worship service that now becomes an ongoing event on the top of Mount Moriah. But those who have gathered there whose hearts have been blessed, that service that was once duty, now for them becomes a delight. And how often that is so very true. How often we as believers need to be challenged That as we set about to build a new habit of righteousness for the Lord, the Lord blesses that habit and makes that habit a delight. They voluntarily now are seen to give. Jowett said, We're a Martian to look down on this planet. One thing that that Martian would see that would testify that Christianity is alive is the gathering of God's people. I trust that we'll find ourselves gathering because it's a priority that it demonstrates in our hearts a true Christian unity. As we do so, that we gather with carefulness under the authority of God. And when times are difficult, we're faithful doing our duty because it becomes a delight as we seek to please the Lord. Thank the Lord that we have the privilege this evening. (laughs) Thank the Lord for the privilege of gathering. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.